Hi everyone, welcome to Steph's audio channel. We are very excited to share our content from Steph's events to learn all about the latest trends in startups, digital media, fintech, future tech, and wellness in emerging markets. You can find us on Enrami, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe to your favorite channel and we hope you enjoy the content. Kicking off uh, this afternoon is our first panel discussing payments, revolutionizing retail. It is headed by Mega Marani, who is a journalist right here in the UAE. Mega, please, please do come to the stage. Please welcome her. She is joined by Hassam Arab of Tabi. Uh, I want to say everyone's names very correctly. Uh, Milian Stamankovic of Mambu, uh, Paul Carey of Alpha Tame, and Remo Abandandolo. Please welcome them all to the stage. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to this afternoon's sessions. Um, I am delighted to be joined here by some of the who's who in the payment space to talk to us today about how new payment models have been impacting shopping behavior as well as pushing retailers outside their comfort zones. We're also going to discuss how retailers can adapt to these new models and what are some strategies that they can proactively use for the future. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. So we've come a long way from cash to card to cardless, and now there's this flurry of new payment models. How are these new payment models posing a challenge to retailers? And Paul, I'm going to start with you. Thank you. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Um, yeah, look, it, it's, it's a challenge for us because of prioritization. You don't want to just try and grab after every single new wallet, new BNPL products coming onto the market. So we've got to prioritize. But also, as a large retailer, we have multiple brands. The integration challenges is actually our biggest challenge to get into the market quickly. We want the likes of Tabby and so on, but how can we bring them in quickly so our customers can benefit from that? So it's definitely finding the right level of payment infrastructure to help our brands uh, get started and, and, and then scale. But everything is about partnerships, using those partners for us. We've, we've obviously got our own market reach, but we need to look at other partners that can help us uh, scale, get additional customers coming in and get the message out there that we've got new options for them, especially when it comes to looking at different forms of credit. So when you roll out um, a new model, a new payment, uh, or work with a new partner, how do you approach it? Do you start with just trialing it perhaps within uh, one of your sec uh, segments or brands, or do you just roll out in a particular um, order? How does it work? Well, it depends on, on how new it is. So uh, we worked with Hussam and his team when Tavi came out. Um, and we actually worked quite closely with them on our in-store product. So everything was starting on e-commerce, but, you know, 85 to 90% of the time of our business was still in-store. So we focused working with them to develop the product that we knew would work in our store environment. So everything for me is around how can we collaborate with a partner to make it the best solution and service and experience for our customers. So very much collaboration. But yes, piloting is key for us, especially new, new ideas, new things coming in. It's not so easy to jump in and then jump out again if it doesn't work. So we have to take a, a, a measured approach. Sometimes for us as a group, that might not be as fast as we would like, but it's, it's best to, to test the water sometimes. Now, for example, though, we're much more comfortable with buy now, pay later as a service, and we have it in multiple markets, both here and in Southeast Asia. So there's a bit more, clearly we're more confident we can go and push that harder and faster. 
Gentlemen, for the rest of you, um, in terms of the challenges that you hear from your customers, from the retailers, um, what are some things that you heard and, you know, how have you been advising them in terms of adapting to these new payment models? Uh, Ramo, we'll start with you. Sure, I think Paul already touched base on the complexity uh, of uh, enabling new payment methods. So this is one of the feedback we get always from merchants, because going to new countries, expanding to new geographies or new verticals, uh, it, it's not an easy way, uh, specifically to navigate the regulatory um, ecosystem in the countries where you go. So at Chacan.com, you know, one of the things we hear a lot from merchants is, how can you help us to expand to Egypt accepting Farway? Can we enable Misa? Can we go to Saudi and getting Mada? How can we get Kenet in Kuwait? So I think that's one of the way how we, we as a company, we solve this problem by unifying all the payment methods in one single API. And that's one of the top three issues that merchants mentioned to us is about, you know, hey, I'm expanding to a new country. How can you help me to go there, essentially? What are some of the other challenges, if you want to jump in, in terms that you hear from retailers and um, how do you advise them? When, when, when we come in to speak to a retailer, it's usually around how we can help them grow their business um, across the challenges that they operate in. So um, usually their challenges are, are primarily around scale and reaching new customers uh, and converting these customers in better ways. And so when we came in, uh, and, and one of the other problems as well that we solved early on was how do we switch that customer from a cash-based payment to more digital payments uh, via, in our, in our way, credit. Um, and so really it is, it's, it's less existential problems or it's less market access problems and it's more about how do I continue to expand on my current offering? How do I get access to additional customers? How do I fix some of the, uh, some of the problems that add complexity to our business? Um, you know, when we go into a merchant, it, it is a very consultative approach on understanding some of, some of the challenges that they face when trying to grow their business and uh, providing the solutions accordingly. Milian, you probably have a more macro view just in terms of how all of this infrastructure works. Um, what are some of the challenges you see that um, on the ground, you know, it, the, sometimes it's the little things or the very practical things with the retailers um, that are a struggle. Um, so do you want to tell us sort of the scene that, that you're looking at? Sure. No, I think that's a great question. And, you know, working with uh, neobanks, fintechs here in the region as well as globally, we actually hear a lot about collaboration, as Paul was talking about, you know, uh, creating those composable ecosystems where, you know, you can collaborate with platforms like Checkout, like Tabby, to offer, uh, offer new, you know, payment methods uh, and new access to, to certain funds. And what we see in the market is actually a lot of opportunities, you know, how to increase your sales conversion, how to drive, you know, your customer acquisition, how to drive the customer retention as well. Um, so if you look at it from a holistic perspective, you actually end up creating those partnerships and ecosystems of partners to enable your customers as well as merchants, obviously, through new payment methods. So it's all about your opportunities, actually, than challenges, I'm saying. So it sounds really great, but how fast does it move? How easy is it to do and how fast does it move in terms of getting everyone on board? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you compare uh, fintechs today and payment service providers, they do not have these... Uh, you know, uh, problems with a lot of uh, regulatory frameworks that they have to meet to a certain extent, as opposed to banks that are not ready to go the extra mile, actually, and offer some of those payment methods uh, going forward. So for them, it's much easier to innovate and to get involved in some of those composable ecosystems to actually to 
you know, offer the payment methods, the new payment methods that we're using today. So I think the time to value or time to market is much quicker than compared to some of the legacy banks and financial services institutions that are there. So it's one thing to adapt and make all these changes and offer all these new methods to customers. But customer adoption, I'm sure, is a whole different story. So how is that going, Paul? Um, I mean, how quick has it been or how easy has it been? Is it more sort of the customers demanding these new models or does it take a bit of a push once you start offering it to get them on board? I mean, it depends on, on the model. So some are purely uh, just a new form factor that allows a customer to pay with funds they already have. So generally we see those are slower uptake. So some of the new digital wallets that are pre-funded wallets for customer to pay, they take time and it's more around what are you doing to promote the use of the wallet to get customer adoption. But where you're providing additional services to that customer, particularly around credit, um, you see a much faster adoption or, or we have seen it. Um, I mean, it's no secret, everyone's seen the explosion of BNPL across various geographies. For us, we've seen pretty much an 8 to 10% month-on-month growth in 2021 on BNPL take-up just in the UAE. And that's largely the credit. Customers are still demanding credit. They might not be able to get it on a credit card because they can't get a credit card, or they don't want a credit card. There's enough research to say that a lot of customers are shunning them. But they still need credit, and it's a short-term credit. So it's not like they're signing up for a long period of, of debt, essentially. So we're seeing that that take-up is, is massive. But it also depends on the brand. So some brands you see much higher frequency of usage, so fashion particularly. But other brands like in our stable, like Ikea and Ace, they might come for the big purchase, but then that's it for a, you know six months, 12 months. Whereas some of our fashion brands, they're coming back every month and using BNPL as a product. So... It's partly customer demographic, partly our brands and, and the mix of that. As well as basket size, I'm sure different um, yeah, different yeah. sectors see different kinds of basket sizes. That's that right. Then. So some, some actually you see only a small uplift in one transaction. But when you look at customer lifetime value, say a 12-month period, we see up to four times the basket size would be NPL versus credit or debit. So you can see that that is helping us as a, as a merchant grow that share of wallet from a customer um, and driving additional revenue. But I think it just in terms of adoption, this region has probably been one of the fastest globally to adopt something like buy now, pay later. And, and, and the reason is, I think, in our region, we had bigger kind of uh, inherent challenges initially around cash. Um, so the consumer has really taken this up as uh, the preferred payment method. So in many, in many of the cases that we see across some of our partners, we're seeing 20 to 30, sometimes 50% share of checkout. And if you compare this to some of the more mature mature markets for buy now, pay later, that those are numbers that they get to at year three, four, and five, right? And so I think the biggest reason here is not only is buy now, pay later coming in and displacing card payments, but we're also displacing a much, much bigger problem, which is cash. Um, and so if, if, uh, if you look at the size of that market, um, and and the convenience that you're offering that customer, it becomes a much more straightforward decision for the customer to to pick buy now pay later as a preferred preferred payment method. In some cases, I think Paul, we're seeing the second largest payment method on on a on a platform becoming buy now pay later. Remo, you were going to add. Yeah, I just want to add on based on what Sam mentioned. As a checkout.com, we are a global payment company, so we have good visibility about what's happening everywhere. And indeed, Middle East has been one of the regions where the adoption of buy now pay later has been absolutely crazy. 
we did the research recently, and as per our um, data, in 2020, 24% of the people we interviewed, they use at least once, one by now per solution, 55% in 2021 in Middle East, and we expect 82 this year. So from almost nothing 2019, to like eight out of 10 people that in the region, they use at least one by now later in one e-commerce company. We never seen these numbers in Europe. We have not seen this number in the US. So it's definitely a region where by now later is here to stay. I'm just curious. So digital payments, digital payment models and buy now pay later, um, these were models available pre-COVID, pre-pandemic. Um, how much of this, I mean, it's no secret, obviously, digital, the digital pushes because um, we've never lived in a world where people were actually afraid to touch, to hold, to pay in cash. But also in terms of solutions like buy now, pay later, um, how much of this is, do you think, um, because of the economic situation created by the pandemic and how much of it was just, well, this was going to become popular anyway? And I know we wouldn't say something, Milian. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole concept of deferred payments has been there for ages, right? It's not really new. But in this day and age, you see such a big growth and increase in uh, the usage of uh, specific business models that are out there. And with BMPL, obviously, there are a couple of different models available. But, you know, if you look at the concept that is very popular, for instance, Southeast Asia, where you have this concept of a super app, right, where either neobanks or fintechs or PSPs are trying to create one app where you can have all your services, whether it's financial service or non-financial service, where you can use basically each and every product that is available on the app, you see... 300 to 400 percent growth Hager uh, in 2020 and thanks to COVID obviously right and you can see that happening here in the Middle East as well uh, and the one reason you can think about going back to you know all the ecosystems we talked about earlier is that you can actually uh, plug in different components you can plug in different service providers to offer a holistic product and holistic service throughout that buying journey where you go from shopping to payment to financing as well as banking product eventually. And I think that's the that's the end goal, at least in that business model, right? Uh, rather than just BMPL or just deferred payment in itself. Yeah, every, everything's gonna be a super app in the future, right? For everything. Um, but we're still not quite there yet in terms of being a cashless society. Right. So we've moved leaps and bounds, but we're not quite at cashless yet. As retailers, you're still having, you're still, um, you know, there's still cash transactions, but then you've constantly introducing these new models. So how difficult has it been or is it to keep up and find that balance between the old and the new and what what are you, I mean, are you incentivizing um, to push people away from cash? Um, do you plan to just stop accepting cash payments one day? Um, what's your outlook? Well, I, I always use Sweden as, as my reference point, um, largely because I'm married to a Swedish woman, so I have an affinity there. But there is, is very much, uh, I don't know if they're quite cashless, but they're, they're right on the edge. So as a visitor, you go there and you go into the shop and it's card or their local payment uh, scheme. But as a visitor, it can be quite difficult sometimes. Some don't uh, offer you Visa MasterCard. So as a visitor, actually, it feels almost like a step backward. Yeah. So for us as, as uh, retailers who are accepting payment, we have to find the right balance. I'm always surprised with the number of people when I'm at the till still paying with cash. Yeah. But there's clearly a customer demographic that likes cash 
and continues to want to use cash. So it will start to dwindle, but we've seen cash uses actually, um, you know, it's been a big shift through the pandemic and even through 2021. But towards the second half of last year, that switch was starting to slow. So it's clear that there is still a, a need for cash in the system in terms of customer preference. Yeah. I think from our side, incentivizing to use other methods won't really work um, because you know, we don't want to offer extra benefits just because they're using a digital product. We're offering benefits in any case. Mm -hmm. So it's more about come and use our digital product within our ecosystem. Yeah. So for example, we have a digital wallet within our blue loyalty platform. We incentivize all customers to try and come into that ecosystem because that's where the benefit lies for us. So yeah, do incent incentives continue. don't necessarily, I mean, we tried incentives at, or disincentives at Namshi uh, back in the day. We charged a customer $10 for a cash transaction. And, and yet, I remember that. 70% <laughs> of customers would choose cash, right? And so I think incentives, disincentives don't necessarily work. What you need to provide is, is real value and a reason for the customer to choose it. And, and so, you know, in, in our view, with buy now, pay later, the value here is you are getting free installments instantly yeah. at the point of checkout there's real value there, right? And there's a real reason for the customer to start using something different. Uh, but incentives, you know, once you take them away, the customer just reverts to, to the mean or to the norm. Um, and you know, so I think, I think UAE, I would probably agree that we're still not there. Saudi has moved quite substantially away from cash. Um, you know, the last four trips I've made to Saudi, I haven't had a real on me. And, and you know, I, uh, I found it very, very difficult to see anyone paying in cash across the kingdom. So I think there's massive shifts that have happened in Saudi just in the last 12 months. So do you think, um, either as a retailer or when you're advising your customers, do you feel compelled or do you have to offer every single method or do you feel compelled to offer every single method or do you just say, okay, well, I'm going to wait for that one or I'm just, these are the ones I offer and let the others go off the other ones. How does it work? Well, I'll, I'll take it quickly. Um, so, you know, if you look at the likes of Emirates, who's got every payment option under the sun, yeah. um, we want to keep it simple. So the main payment options are clear. We want to have those in place. But adding every single wallet, every single points redemption is just too much effort yes. for the return. Yeah. Customers have, you know, two or three and payment options. And the cost for you. Well, there's the cost too. But the customers have got two or three payment options. They prefer one of them typically in any case. So we stick with the main and yes, we look at the emerging ones, possibly. If it's quick and easy and cheap to add, we'll do it. But otherwise, it just clutters the checkout process. And also in store, it gets difficult if you're having to select a different payment type each time. We try and keep it simple as much as we can. Yeah, it's almost like a really long menu to choose from yeah. then. Uh, you were going to add Ramon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we notice also the experience of our merchants is that the more the better, but they need to be relevant, essentially. So the customers need to, want, they need to have the ability to actually... They want to pay that payment method because it's popular. We saw this in Mada in Saudi, the local debit card scheme. Four years ago, you could not pay with a debit card online. Now, 70 plus percent of the transactions are done on Mada, specifically on Apple Pay, which is another wallet which adopted very quickly in Saudi. And that's again, going back to the complexity of the first question, that that's what we're trying to solve. That we can make uh, polls and all the other retailers' life easier, that if there is a new payment method which is taking off, yeah. they can enable in a very simple way. Because also what we noticed is that a lot of retailers now, they start to understand that payments is not a cost center, but actually, you know, can be a revenue generator because we can get more users or we can do discussion delivery, which is another thing that we saw in Saudi. Yeah. In our report I was referring before, which by the way, it's available for free on checkout.com, has a lot of this data and the trend is very clear. You know, cash and delivery is continuously going down. 
in Saudi as well as in the UAE. Uh, in terms of offering or deciding which methods to offer, uh, Milian, again, from a macro perspective, um, especially in this part of the world, the UAE, Dubai in particular, we're also such a tourism economy. And so there is that additional pressure to offer um, payment methods that are also tourist friendly so that, um, you know, like Paul was explaining with the example with going to Sweden. So what do you think should be the approach or what do, you know, retailers who haven't quite been able to decide which way to go, how would you advise them? Right. Again, maybe from, from another angle, we're working with most of the neo banks, neo and, and digital banks here in the region. We see that they actually are trying to step away from traditional banking products because there are only four or five for the last five decades. Yeah. That's not the place where they can innovate. It's all about offering new payment methods and offering new ways of, you know, uh, paying for, for stuff you want to buy, financing stuff you want to buy, and so on. Um, so when you look at what they want to offer is, again, plug in different components that make sense for them to attract new revenue, to build new revenue streams and attract new customers. So I think that's, that's the key, actually, to basically offer new innovative payment methods that you can attract wider audience rather than just specific uh, target market that you had up until now. And really, the, the existing banks are failing big on coming up with new products. If you look at all of them, you know, now they're trying to offer credit cards with split payment, right, or four-in-one. It's, it's not really anything new. But if you look at what new banks are doing, they try to offer, let's say, a card that can do both debit as well as credit. They want to do PMPL through the likes of Tabby and, and you know, similar so those partnerships that are plugging in yeah. enable them to offer relevant payment methods. And it's really that familiarity with the, the payment method and perhaps brand that matters, right? Yeah, I think it's the key value adds uh, that Hassan was talking about earlier uh, is not only convenience, but it's also transparency, right? With a platform like Tabby, BMPL, you can actually, you know exactly how much you're going to pay and when. There are no hidden fees, which we're all familiar with when it comes to yes. banks. Uh, so it's all about transparency and offering that transparency to the end consumer. That's what lures you in to start using some of those payment methods, I think. So, Hassam, I'm curious, um, and Paul, if you would want to jump in as well. Um, how has Buy Now, Pay Later changed the buying patterns, um, perhaps in terms of spending or frequency? What's actually changed in terms of how much or what people are buying? So, in terms of just uh, maybe, maybe looking at the timing of when people buy, uh, a lot of the retailers we spoke to used to see a lot of spikes around salary days. And one of the things that we've managed to do with the retailers is normalize the buying patterns, right? It's, and rather than seeing those spikes, they start to see a much more, uh, much more flat, uh, pattern throughout the month, which for them helps them out tremendously, right? There's no, no excess. Uh, demand on shipping and fulfillment during the end of the month. Uh, cash flow looks a lot better. And so that's one thing that, uh, that has really changed. Um, I think beyond that as well, you know, frequency does definitely, uh, uh improve substantially, right? And, and I think frequently, uh, frequency partially due to the fact that a lot of customers now look for retailers that offer the buy now pay later yeah. solution. And therefore they're targeted a lot more often than ones that don't. Uh, but generally, you know, if you are buying a pair of shoes for 2,000 dirhams every six months, now you are in probably a better position to be able to do that once every two months, right? And, and so we, we are seeing changes in frequency. We're seeing changes in loyalty on merchants that offer it. 
And then finally, as we said, uh, the uh, average transaction value also substantially increases across the board. Big increase in spending after offering buy now, pay later. What's changed? Yeah, so I mean, every every retailer I guess who had an e-commerce platform saw the spikes through the pandemic. But actually, if you just put take card transactions out of the way, buy now, pay later has been a huge uh, push for us overall. So some of our fashion brands are just online only. As, uh, as we said earlier, sort of fifty percent of them are coming through BNPL. So. For some brands, you see the big shift to online. That's helped, actually, I think that's helped accelerate online for our group more than just the, the reason you couldn't get to the shops. Um, but even in store, you know, we see those one ticket items or those frequency. We generally see everything is increased through BNPL. You just like to come back more because you like the experience. Um, you, or you just like to do that big purchase that maybe you've been putting off. So there are limits because BNPL only goes up to so high in terms of transaction value. So, we're, as, as a group, we're looking for that next sweet spot that is kind of traditionally in their personal loan from a bank, but the experience isn't, frankly, very good. So you need that in-store environment. So we've got it now in BNPL, but it's now the next level up that we are looking forward to see. Is there another option for customers who want to spend a little bit more? Do you think BNPL is going to take away... I mean, how much has it taken away from credit cards in terms of a more preferred option? Um, do you do you see it taking away more? Uh, are there any numbers to quantify this? Well, what we see on our side is that the, the biggest part is um, the cash on delivery more than the cards. Uh, and as Paul was mentioning as well, I think that's the incremental volume as well. So I don't think it's about necessarily a shift. Yeah, there might be. But it's more on the actually the cash, which is clearly going down. So I'm going to be a bit controversial here for a second. Um, with the increase in BNPL, though, there is always the conversation around consumerism. Is this model um, actually pushing people to buy much more of what they might not need and ultimately still land in, um, you know, a difficult situation. So, um, Paul, I know we were speaking a little bit about responsible consumerism. How does that actually work? Well, I mean, it's incumbent on the industry to look at this collectively. It shouldn't be one any one body, but essentially, clearly, as merchants, we're trying to sell more products, but that shouldn't be at the expense of, you know, forcing it on customers by saying, well, you can buy more now, you've got a credit option. And then that customer is getting into trouble. Where we want to be careful is customers are not taking every credit option to them, multiple BNPL, credit cards, etc. Um, so we have to be responsible. Um, but at the end of the day, the way we view it is we're helping customers afford the yeah. items they want. But let's not do it at the expense of pushing customers who are possibly not so good at financial management or are already stretched because some of these credit options are sitting outside of the regulatory system in the UAE and yeah. in other markets. So you see in other markets like the UK, the, the uh, regulators jumping now on this. I think we need to be careful not to cut it off completely. It has to be mindful of keeping a good customer experience and giving it access to customers who are good at managing their finances or just are able to. It's not always the fault of the customer. So we need to find the right collective responsibility yeah. to position it. And I think that's where, as a, as a collective, that's where we need to work. Hassan, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. So listen, I think the, the alternative is consumerism on credit cards, which is a lot more expensive for consumers, right? Uh, I mean, for us, at the end of the day, we 
promote responsible spending because it's actually good for our business to, to have responsible spending. To, uh, to ensure that people have the capability to pay us back is actually a core part of our business. As opposed to, again, on the other side, a credit card or a bank prefers that you don't fully pay back because that's how you make your money. So, you know, the, the, the structure and the way that we built, uh, the, the buy now, pay later is built as a, as a model is actually better for the consumer because at the end of the day, the, the merchant is funding that purchase. And, and if a customer is not able to repay for one reason or another, we're, we very simply cut them off, right? Again, as opposed to a credit card where they say, here, pay, pay a little slither of your outstanding and, and, and here's the build. additional interest uh, that we're going to charge you on it. So I think, you know, we do this because we're good people, but we also do this because it's good business. Yeah. Um, you were going to add? I mean, obviously, for, for us, you know, we, we continue to see adoption of new payment methods. By now, pay later, what we said is definitely the trend, but I think it's also what's, what's next. So there is continuous new payment methods. Like this panel four years ago, we were not going to talk about by now, pay later, essentially. So it's also about continue to look out what the consumers, they are looking to use as a payment method. Yeah. Which brings me nicely to my next question, which is, what's next? Um, how are these payments going to continue evolving? What are some of the um, future models that perhaps are works in progress at the moment? Or how are some of the current models going to be enhanced further? What, what do you see coming in the next three to five years? And maybe, Milian, you'll be able to shed more light as well from the in infrastructure perspective. Yeah, sure. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, in, in terms of neobanking and fintechs, they are looking at different business models out there. That are powered by BNPL, for instance. You know, I talked about a super app concept. There are uh, card link uh, payments. There are off-card payments. There are different models that are out there. Uh, credit cards as well, for, for better or worse. Uh, but going forward, I think it's all going to be about transparency. And what what you you know what consumers like about using BNPL is looking at your app, being able to see when is the next payment coming up that you responsibly have to you know pay back what you own. Otherwise, there is a fee, obviously, included that. Um, so it's all about transparency, and that's basically coming from the big tech world, right? That's how banks are changing today. They look at what are the big tech companies doing. Yeah. That's why they're building new business models and technology around it. Yeah. And this obviously trickles down to payment service providers and all. Any future models that you want to hint at? We are not really in the business of predicting the future, <laughs> but uh, what, what we do, we, we as a company... We, we are very agile to make sure that we can adopt the new payment methods. Uh, that's exactly what we did again, Mada in Saudi. All of a sudden was enabled for online payments. We couldn't guess, but we were ready because we were agile as a company. So I think that's the important, you know, the message for, you know, players like us, as well as for retailers to remain agile and making sure what, when the next buy now operator is coming, you are ready to adopt and very quickly because we already saw, we already saw like Apple Pay entering in Qatar and Bahrain overnight, representing a significant amount of the online spend of the digital payments. So I think also the, it's important to remain agile as a company from that point of view to be able to embrace the new change that are happening. I guess that word, um, I mean, it's one thing to use the word agile 
over the last 10 years, but never have we seen it mean so much in the last couple of years. I'm just curious if any of you had experiences or um, any any situations that you witnessed where um, because of the situation changing overnight during the pandemic, was it really agile, that shift, or um, how did how did things move? Yeah, I think that's that's a very good question, actually. And, you know, coming from Mambu, we offer, you know, pro-banking SaaS solutions. So during the COVID time, obviously, some of our customers came back with the requirement of saying, hey, you know, we need to offer payment holidays as banks, as fintechs, right? And we as an organization had to look at the requirements, build that capability, and push to all our customer base within, within three days. Uh, which, you know, is quite fantastic in terms of core banking solutions. But if you think bigger, one of our clients is N26, which is the well-known digital bank. You know, they started off, speaking of Agile, they started off as a prepaid card for teenagers. And, you know, going forward, they realize it's their parents that are using prepaid cards, right? So they sound like we, in terms of agility, we have to pivot they moved on, built a proper digital banking product and offer it to the market uh, in the next iteration. So being able to pivot, being able to change and adopt quickly, I think it's key of, of being agile, right? Which is something that banks today, established banks are not actually able to do. There were some pretty heartwarming stories around social commerce at the time for especially the really small businesses and home run businesses as well. So really, it's incredible to see how fast things were able to move and adapt. What was it like over um, at your end, Paul? Um, I know that you already offered some of the methods prior to the pandemic, but in terms of that shift the agility um how quick and how easy was it to move and um i know there were lots of um increases i think one there was even apps being used much more in terms of the uh, some of the brands so what was your experience like and were there any crashes or um traffic that went through the roof well i think um you know there's nothing like a crisis to get people to focus yeah. on actually maybe forgetting some of those strategic plans and focusing yeah. on how do we get uh, service to customers? So our stores shut overnight. And even in Singapore at the moment, it's kind of been a bit flip and flop. It shuts and then it opens again. So you have to focus on how do we reach customers? So very much, actually, it was pretty much old school. Customers still want to buy our products. They still want to pay by card. We haven't got a website for some brands because typically we hadn't needed to. So how do we get to those customers? You know, a PDF uh, catalog via WhatsApp with a payment link Actually, you can set that up, you know, within a couple it's of days. It's incredibly efficient. Yeah. And, and, you know, we then realized, okay, how long is this going to last? We scaled it across 30 brands. Because even brands with e-com still had customers who weren't using e-com. They were going to the store. So how do you help them get to the product? They still needed certain products. Some products, maybe not so. So I think we, had, we were forced to adapt. And I feel as a group overall, we did a, a pretty good job of doing that. And then as things started to calm down, we started to be able to get back to that planning again. And, and actually, we launched the NPL both here in Singapore during the pandemic um, and were able to start um, getting that out there online and, and in store as customers started to come back. So we were reasonably nimble within you know, certain tolerances, but certainly when 
shops were shutting, I think that's where the strength of our teams pulled together and said, okay, we have to do something now. I'm curious if any of you, have you seen any of these trends reverse or, or move a few steps back in terms of now that the world has opened up? Are people still sticking to the new methods they use during the pandemic or are some of them just going back to their old ways? So uh, in terms of e-commerce growth, that's definitely slowed down and, and uh, there's no surprise there. Um, what we saw in 2021, we ha- basically took the, took the region, uh, it would have taken the region another three or four years to get there, got there and, and we saw that happen in, in the span of probably six months. Some of the traditional retailers of the market uh, that had a five-year plan to launch 30 websites had to do that in, in the span of six months. So that definitely happened and we saw a massive spike because of that. And, but where we are right now, there's definitely been that normalization towards, uh, you know, people going back to the stores because they want to. Um, and, and the growth is, is definitely not what we uh, saw in the early days. But one of the things on, on the previous point, I remember uh, Paul, Paul called us um, as the stores were opening up and saying we want a solution for offline. Um, right. And we didn't. We weren't focused on offline, obviously, because there was no reason to do that. Um, and we got together, worked with a team, and over a couple of year, a couple of week periods, we were able to produce something for their offline stores and launch um, across IKEA. I think it was uh, to start off with. So, uh, you know, I, I think that collaboration with what is tradi- what is a, a traditional retailer by 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 many means uh, to give their customers something that they demand and they saw demand for in another channel was uh, was definitely an, an area we saw uh, um, great collaboration in um how do you think customer behavior going forward is going to change because we've seen the extreme shift, we've seen some of it reverse or balance or turn to sort of hybrid models. What what are you seeing or what do you expect in terms of consumer behavior over the next three to five years? And what should retailers be thinking about to be ahead of the game? And I'll start with you, Ramo. Yeah, we continue to see a clear growth. And uh, I think there are three things that maybe I can mention first. We continue to see a great growth in e-commerce in general, in traditional retail business as well as adoption of new business model. Uh, the second thing we see to grow is the adoption of digital payments. That's also clear that you know people want to pay with a digital payment method. If it's a card, if it's buy now, pay later, if it's Apple Pay, if it's a digital wallet. And third, the, the increased adoption of uh, cross-border transactions. We continue to see a lot of people that they buy items that they are not available in the region but they are available on e-commerce somewhere else. So this is actually an interesting trend we continue to see in Middle East. And obviously payments play a clear role here because you know, you're buying something here with your payment method, but you're buying somewhere else, yeah. essentially. Yeah. So those are, I will say, the three trends we continue to see uh, in 2022 as well. Paul, how do you see consumer behavior shifting? Well, dare I say the word super app. Um, I think, you know, we're across Southeast Asia and MENA largely, and, and Southeast Asia is kind of pretty ahead in terms of that but here clearly there's lots of companies uh, catching up fast and have aggressive plans and Kareem is one for example so for us as a group we're looking very much to leverage the different brands we have and build that customer ecosystem so we have a a loyalty platform across MENA and soon to be Southeast Asia to bring it's not just a discount platform that was where it started but it's more around giving value to customers now 
What services can we bring to those customers that keep them within our ecosystem, capture more data, understand them better, give them a better service and a better experience? You know, everyone's always talked about putting customer at the heart of their business, and that's never really changed. But we have the tools, or the tools have changed. So we have these apps, we have these different ways to engage customers, not just online or on an app, but in store as well. So for us, it's about bringing those tools into play that you get a fantastic customer experience that's relevant to that customer, whether they're in store, walking down the street on the app or on our online sites. So that for us is our focus going forward uh, to bring both our brands to that customer, but also a range of services, whether it's finance, uh, whether, whether it's uh, third party services, that's got to be a focus for us in the near future. Since you mentioned the word loyalty, uh, I'm curious, do you think uh, loyalty programs are going to become more meaningful or are in need of a sort of a makeover for the, the next stage with all of these new payment models coming into play? Yeah, for me, it's more around experience than loyalty. I think loyalty, yes, clearly plays a part, but how are you going to uh, drive that loyalty? It can't just be, I like that brand, therefore I'm going to shop there. It's, I've had a great experience, I've had value add. And for us, as I said, we try and look at across brands. So it's not, I love shopping in M&S, therefore I'm gonna continue shopping there. It's, I love M&S, but actually I've also now been exposed to something that works for me in another brand, it could even be across industry to Toyota or whoever. It's, for us, it's about the experience, but making it relevant. We can't just continue with this you know, spray and pray approach to targeting customers. What, why would that customer want to go to another one of our brands? And how can we reach them in a meaningful way that actually resonates at the, the right time? It can't just be you know, random messaging. Yeah, I guess for the longest time, how you pay was never part of your customer experience. It was sort of that end separate stage, um, no matter what your customer experience was. So um, yes, that's definitely a change that's in the making. Uh, Milian, how do you see consumer behavior shifting, changing over the next three to five years? So what's happening right now, obviously, through payment methods like this, you enable consumers with low purchase power, right, to go for small, medium, or big ticket items. Uh, but going forward, obviously, the idea is to bring back everything to the holistic uh, journey, customer journey that Paul is talking about here. Uh, with that, you actually create some stickiness to your products and your brand, and that's how you expand further. So it's not only about offering BMPL, for example, as the uh, payment method. It's about how you build a whole ecosystem around it to expand uh, going forward. What do you think, Hossam? How's it going to change? Yeah, uh, the I guess what we're seeing is, and then maybe maybe what has happened in buy now, pay later globally over the last three months, I'd say two months, uh, is proof to that that uh, customers want a bit more than just a payment method, right? And 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 you're not going to be you're not going to create value by being a payment method on checkout. Um, today, twenty percent of our customers come back on our app to look for where else we're available. Right. They want to they want to, you know, when they're interacting with our brand, they want to experience the brand in many ways. And if we're not able to provide that to them, uh, I think we we miss out on, on quite a lot. Um, and and we see that again, right, with with uh, what has happened in the public markets on the buy now pay later uh, side over the last few months, a lot of these um, I would say one trick ponies where it's literally just a payment method that sits on a merchant checkout with little relationship uh, built with the consumer. A lot of these businesses 
have either gone away or are going away very soon. Uh, and so that's something we just need to be very careful and, and, and cognizant of, that, uh, that that customer is looking for a bit more than just an interaction on, on, a, on a checkout. So final words, um, if just in a line each, if you were telling retailers what to do um, or what they absolutely need to start thinking about um, for the immediate future, what's the one piece of advice you'd give them in terms of digital payments? And I'll start with you, Remo. Localization. So whatever you are selling, just make sure you offer the relevant payment methods in the country you are actually going to enter or where you want to operate. Okay. For me, it's leveraging partnerships, um, speed to market, reducing your costs, and also accessing new customers. Yeah, I echo your thoughts. It's all about building partnerships and ecosystems uh, so that you can offer meaningful payment methods. Um, maybe in, for buy now, pay later. Yeah, the, the, the biased view is don't offer too many. Uh, just just choose, choose the best one. And last cheeky question before we wrap up. Um, how far away, your prediction, how far away are we from being a cashless society? When will we go completely cashless? Your predictions. Anyone care to venture? I'm sure someone's recording this. So if you're right, they'll keep playing that in the future. Yes. Not far, because I think, uh, as Osam said, you know, last four trips, I didn't use any Saudi Real. I mean, I did probably, I would say, last 10, I did. So I think we're definitely not far. But I think, I'm not sure cashless, the right word is probably less cash. It's going to be always a small, sniffing amount of people, like my mom, who so always cash is want not going to obsolete. have to pay cash. But we are very, very close to see almost irrelevant. June 2024. Is my no, I think I, I echo the I'm same thing. Write that down. Yeah. <laughs> I echo the same thing. Um, I, I'm not actually a proponent of complete cashless society. I think reduce it down to keep things efficient. But I still feel, at least for the, the next few years, uh, there is a need to retain some of that for customer demographic who still want and feel comfortable with cash. I think Sweden is a great example of an almost cashless society. I spent the last 10 years living in the Netherlands where you know, you're getting to that point as well. But I think it's all about the convenience, right? Using cash, I cannot remember you know, carrying cash with me for the last couple of years. I think it's all about the convenience that we discussed earlier, and that's why it's coming soon, actually. Nothing different. So, yeah, I think we're, we're getting there. Predictions, if it's going to happen fully, I don't, I don't think so, but I think, I think we'll get there. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Can we have a round of applause for our panel? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find our content on Angami, Spotify, and Apple Podcast. Follow us on social media at Step Conference and let's stay in touch. <laughs>